Reading is from Luke 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went down to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the lion of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came when the baby was born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Our Father God, we pray that you would indeed open our eyes, that we might see the truth of your light. And we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would be willing to respond rightly, that we would not live in the darkness when your light has dawned. Amen. Uh, I like to think of myself as a realist. I think those close to me call me a cynic. Um, The term realist is a better one. But I rather enjoyed last week at newspapers printing a, a jargon buster. I think it was particularly aimed at those who are from overseas to help them understand what it is that Brits mean when we trot out some of our familiar Christmas phrases. And you like the cynical truth behind the Christmas cheer. Uh, and I'll just share a few of them with you. You look festive. If anybody says that to you, it means they think, I think you've had one too many. Uh, I don't actually own a Christmas jumper, but I thought this would be closest. Means, I'd rather open a vein than wear dignity-free novelty knitwear. Lunch might be a little bit later than we planned. The turkey is frozen in the middle, the spuds are like charcoal, and I'm having a nervous breakdown. (laughs) This mulled wine is just delicious. It's too hot, it's full of woody shrapnel, and it makes my teeth feel furry. But hey, what's not to like about socially acceptable daytime drinking? (laughs) I thought I might just pop out for a walk. If I have to stay cooped up in the house with my loved ones for just a minute longer... I am going to commit a hate crime. I couldn't eat another thing. Oh, go on then. I could just about squeeze in a turkey and stuffing sandwich, cheese and biscuits, two mince pies and a couple of dozen quality street. And isn't it time we played a family board game? It means I feel like starting World War III. (laughs) Uh, But nothing confirmed my cynicism about Christmas quite as much as this genuine newspaper report from the incident of the Hamleys Christmas Toy Parade just up in Regent Street. I quote, a middle-aged woman was taken to hospital after being punched to the ground during chaotic scenes at the Christmas Toy Parade in Regent Street after they experienced unprecedented crowd numbers for the Peppa Pig meet and greet. (laughs) If you can't keep the peace at a Christmas parade at a toy shop, humanity is shot, let's face it. But the truth is, it's not just people out there who struggle to keep the peace. We see it right here in our own lives and our own families. There are resentments and spats that all of us know about, and there are long-running, bitter disputes that we just have to paper over. One reason why we argue with loved ones so much at Christmas is, uh, you know, the shark attack principle. Most shark attacks take place in shallow water. So people thought sharks like to hunt in shallow water, but of course, that's not the case at all. It's just that that's where the humans spend most of our time. We go into shallow water, and so you're more likely to be bitten by a shark in shallow water. One reason you argue with your family so much at Christmas is it's 
just that's the amount when you'd spend most time with them. But there is something more that goes on at Christmas. It's not just we spend more time together then. It's also that uh, the background music for our lives from mid-November raises the expectations. We, we hear song after song after song blaring out in the shops, telling us that Christmas is a time of peace and goodwill. The Pogues growling about a better time when our dreams come true. John Lennon telling, we, telling us we can have peace if we just want it. Slade shrieking that everybody is having fun. And when, that's been, when you've been marinated in that, day after day, week after week, Christmas after Christmas, when reality bites and people treat us just as badly as well, we sometimes treat them, we get frustrated and angry. But what I'd like to show you uh, from this reading, the first reading we had in Isaiah 9, I'd like to spend a few minutes just trying to convince you that there is solid hope for lasting peace in the birth of Christ at Christmas. There is solid hope for lasting peace. Now the passage was written um, originally by the prophet Isaiah about 740 BC and he's making a promise that was uh, given by God to the prophet Isaiah and it's a promise that came true, if you like, was fulfilled the very first Christmas when Jesus was born. And it tells us that hope for peace on earth is real because a baby has been born. Uh, First you see the the dawn of hope, verses 1 to 5. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where Jesus lived, by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Isaiah's vision starts with the people living in darkness. Now, darkness in the Bible, and in Isaiah particularly, is not just a lack of sunlight. He's not describing Scotland. Throughout Isaiah, darkness is a willful ignorance about God and the confusion that brings. In fact, chapter 8 of Isaiah talks in detail about the way that the people of God have rejected God's good advice, the maker's instructions, and have turned aside to their own ideas and to other gods, and to, and to all sorts of solutions, political solutions, whatever it is, they'll turn to anything, but they won't listen to God. And he says the result is that they're, they're in absolute darkness. Internally, the society was seething with resentment over injustice and rampant inequality. And externally, they're facing the terrifying threat of the, the new superpower, Syria, bearing down on them, ready to destroy them. So darkness, as we, as we get to the beginning of Isaiah 9, is not knowing God, is turning away from God and so not knowing what to do. And the strife and the inequality and the suffering that result from our rejection of God. Now, we're not 8th century Israel, we're 21st century London, but I think there's a lot of darkness around us too. We are a culture that is desperately short on wisdom. And we face baffling challenges. I mean, hands up if you wake up in the morning and turn on the radio or uh, flick open the website with a, with a warm glow of healthy, oh, I just can't wait to see how wonderfully the Brexit negotiations are, are continuing. I, I have so much confidence in, in the EU to behave reasonably and our politicians to behave wisely. It'll be wonderful. And then there's the Grenfell inquiry. It's great that it's happening, but do we really think that at the end of it, the problems of injustice and inequality and housing in London will be sorted. 
There's the intractable problem of whether Syria is better in the hands of Assad or ISIS and the terrorists. So many problems, and for all our technology, our education, and our advisors, and we're utterly unsure of what to do most of the time. But the message of Christmas is that light has dawned. To a people trying to live their life by the torch, the sun has risen. Now look at the results, verse 3. We rejoice. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. We rejoice. I wonder what makes you sing. Many of us, actually, we only sing to sing people happy birthday. But the news of Christmas is a news of great joy. It's why the carols were written. It's why Christians sing every week and enjoy doing so. What happened that first Christmas? What happened in the life of Jesus is so good that you can't just speak about it. You have to sing if you get it. It's described as like the joy of harvest when everyone shares in abundance. Or for urbanites, it's like bonus season at Goldman Sachs. It's like the rejoicing of warriors sharing plunder after a battle. Again, that's probably far from our experience. It's the joy of celebrating a great victory. If you're an Australian sports fan, you know something of that at the moment. As long as you like cricket, not rugby. Uh, Verse 4, it's the joy of rescue from slavery or kidnap or bullying oppression. Verse 5, it's deep and total peace. Not just the swords and spears are destroyed, but even the clothes and and the boots worn in battle are burned up. Do you know how many nations in our world are not involved in armed conflict today? There are, depending on how you count, 193 or 197 nations. If you're interested, Vatican, Palestine, Taiwan, and Kosovo are what caused the disagreement. Of all those nations, only 10 are not actively involved in armed conflict right now. Around the world today, 40 to 46 million people are living as slaves. In 2017, some of them right here in London. Around the world today, around 2.4 billion people, that's 35% of the global population, are living right now under oppressive dictatorial regimes. And the promise of Isaiah is that God would act decisively to bring peace through the birth of Jesus. The dawn of hope would come through the arrival of the Prince of Peace. And there would be freedom and liberty and peace on earth. The original story is the story of dawning hope and peace, but it is not, as we see in verses 6 to 7, a Disney story where we all look deep inside and find that we ourselves have the answer to the problems of our world, our communities, our families. The Bible tells a different story. It says real hope actually has to come in from the outside because humanity has proved immensely unwilling or perhaps incapable of acting on God's wise and good instructions on how to live at peace with one another. And so on that first Christmas, God rolled up his sleeves, tore open the fabric of reality, and he stepped into history to sort things out. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. 
And that's extraordinary. You know, in spite of all that we humans have done to one another and to this planet, in spite of the way that we've ignored and mocked God, he doesn't send a warrior against us. He sends a son to us, for us. And what a man he will grow up to be. Now, I know most parents think their children are special. I read your Christmas letters. You know, I've yet, have you, I've yet to ever meet a parent who would describe their child as average. I mean, out there, there have got to be a number of average children. I have never, ever met their parents. It's extraordinary. But this child, this child is something else. Look at the titles given. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He will be called the Wonderful Counselor. Now, that doesn't mean he's a therapist. It's the word for advice. It means, look, he knows the best way for a Brexit negotiation that leads to the flourishing of both Europe and the UK. He knows how to create lasting peace in the Middle East. He knows how to handle the tyrants in North Korea and Syria. He also knows how to handle the localized, intractable problems of our own families, our own workplaces, our own relationships, the tyrants we're related to and work with. And when Jesus was teaching, when this wonderful counselor was teaching, we read that his words were so compelling that grown men would go without food to listen to him speak. He'll also be mighty God. Literally, it means God the mighty hero. Now, superhero movies are all the rage. I think it's because CGI means that you can now uh, make things look believable on the screen. But Hollywood likes to squeeze every last drop of money out of these movies. And so they they have innumerable sequels. The problem is each sequel, the the baddie, the challenge, has to get more serious somehow uh, to to keep the suspense, to, to maintain the interest. And so you, know, you, have to, you have to somehow find a, a more dangerous, a more powerful villain to fight against. Well, Jesus took on and beat death. There's no sequel possible after that. <laughs> you know, that is it, really. He has beaten death. He is the mightiest hero of all. He will also be everlasting father. And the point there is, he's not some minor second-rate deity. This is the full-on, uncreated, uncontainable, everlasting God of the Old Testament. The creator of every atom of the universe, somehow squeezed into a few cells in a young woman's womb, and then born as a human. He will also be the Prince of Peace. He has come to end the warfare between nations, the mistrust and the hatred between races, the bickering and bitterness between husbands and wives. And his reign will last forever. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Do you know who the longest governing ruler in human history is? It's King Sobuza II of Swaziland. Don't pretend you knew. Uh, He took the throne in 1899 and died in 1981. 82 years. Queen Elizabeth II only comes in at number 41. Very disappointing. Three more years and she barely breaks the top 30. Extraordinary. But this king will reign forever and ever. 
Isaiah's description sounds wonderful, but the truth is, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was born, and I don't look out in the world this morning and see much evidence of a wonderful reign of eternal peace and justice. And so you wonder whether this prophecy of Isaiah is as believable as Southern Railway's Christmas timetable. It's nothing, nothing more than a, a figment of imagination. I don't know if you remember the Twitter storm that surrounded uh, pop star Katy Perry after the Manchester bombing. I don't know if you follow her on Twitter, whether you've got better things to do with your time. But uh, she tweeted, The greatest thing we can do is just unite and love on each other. No barriers, no borders, we all just need to coexist. And there was a massive backlash, and not just because of her ungrammatical use of a preposition with the verb to love, which is what wound me up. Um, The issue was that to most people it just sounded so utterly trite. We just need to love on each other. Now I know that wasn't her intention. And frankly there are enough people tweeting hatred and misery in the world. It's quite nice that somebody tweeted, can't we just love each other? But you hear those words and think, yeah that's just not enough. A fat lot of good words are in the face of implacable enemies who are willing to blow themselves up to kill you. Words just can't do it in the face of that. But here's the thing. Jesus' promise of a reign of peace comes with power. Why do I say that? Because the example of his life and because the achievement of his death. Firstly, the example of his life. You see, when the great ones in this world are attacked and offended, they strike back. And so the latest round of Um, sanctions against North Korea have been described by Kim Jong-un as an act of war that will be retaliated against. That's how the great ones in this world behave. They use their power to strike back. But Jesus wasn't like that. The greatest one of all, God the mighty hero, the everlasting father, and he taught his followers, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, forgive them. And when he was being tortured to death after an unjust trial, He practiced what he preached and prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. But it's not just the example of his life that gives it power, it's the achievement of his death. See, Isaiah talked about this wonderful king reigning on David's throne. When Jesus went to David's city, Jerusalem, he was not worshipped and ushered onto the throne. He was rejected by the people, he was rejected by the religious leaders, and he was rejected by the Roman political rulers. And instead of worshipping him, instead of enthroning him, they nailed him to a cross outside the city. But the eyewitnesses who saw it, whose accounts form Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four Gospels in the Bible, they recognised that Jesus' crucifixion was his coronation. That it was as he was nailed to the cross to die that the reign of the Prince of Peace began which seems extraordinary to our eyes. But they understood that because they knew why he was dying. See, Jesus had always taught that there is a greater conflict, the root, the seed of all the human conflict, from the bickering in families to the war between nations, is our rejection of God. We all insist that we will run our lives our way. We turn our back on God, even if we don't say we hate him or deny him. We insist we have the right to do what we want and we shove him out. We rebel against him. 
and we put ourselves on the throne that should be Jesus's. And fighting results because we each want the throne. That's the source of conflict. I want to be on the throne and if you're in my way, I'll shove you aside. And as I said, God ought to ought to come and sort it out. But instead of sending a warrior to overcome us or a judge to condemn us, he sent his son to be an ordinary human being so that he could take the place of us and die the death that we deserve so that he could absorb the punishment for our rebellion against God, for the way that we have ignored God and the way that we have trampled on and used the people made in God's image. You see, I deserve, we all deserve, to be cut off from the light, the love, and the life of God forever. And instead, God took that punishment himself. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he was suffering the penalty we deserve, dying the death that should be ours, so that we could have peace with God, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could live forever. And one day, the man who died on the cross will return in glory to bring about the fullness of what we read here, perfect peace forever and everyone. But his death released the power of peace and forgiveness into our world of strife even now. And the proof of the pudding for that is in the eating. You see, when people come to know Jesus now, a power for peace and forgiveness is released into their lives. You see it. Even now you can see that Isaiah's words are not celebrity tweets as you see the impact of the Prince of Peace today in the world. Uh, I saw it in one striking story um, a week or so ago. 60 years after Martin Luther King sought to bring peace between races in the States, there is a lot of mistrust and racial hate, sadly. Uh, The image of the far-right march in Charlottesville earlier this year shocked us. And one of the big flashpoints of racial tension in the States, I'm sure you know, has been the shooting of unarmed black men by white police officers. And this week, last week, sorry, for the first time, a white cop was convicted of murder for shooting a black man. Uh, Michael Slager had shot Walter Scott after a traffic stop in Charleston. And it was rightly huge news in the States. But the most extraordinary moment in the trial was not the moment that Michael Slager was convicted. It was actually when the victim's mother took the stand. The New York Times was so amazed by her words that it finished its report of this uh, groundbreaking moment of justice with, with her words. They said, Judy Scott was asked about the police officer who murdered her son during her evidence. And she looked at him in the dock and said, I forgive you. And I pray that you will repent And let Jesus come into your life. Just as you are, he will forgive you too. Where do you find the power to say, I forgive you to the man who murders your son? To put your trust in Jesus is to recognize I've lived for myself, I've ignored God, and I've used other people. But Jesus has died the death I deserve. So that I can be forgiven and at peace with God. And when you know that, When you know that forgiveness and peace with God, it releases into you a power of peace and forgiveness. It unlocks a power that can uh, can forgive across racial lines and end cycles of violence and bitterness in families and nations. And so as we turn to trust in Jesus this Christmas, as we remember the peace with God he has won for us, that's where you and I can find strength. 
to change the cycles within our own families, within our own hearts. I don't need to respond to provocation the way I usually do. I can forgive others who hurt me, who belittle me, who ignore me. I don't need to push their buttons when they've pushed my buttons if I know this Prince of Peace. Because when he has forgiven me for all I have done, it unlocks a power for me to forgive others. And if you know the Lord Jesus this Christmas, well then God calls us to show it. You don't have to respond the way you usually do. There is power to be different. There is power to bring peace to your families, your relationships. You see, Isaiah's promise of a divine ruler who brings eternal peace are not empty words. Jesus bought that peace with his death on the cross and you and I can experience it now. And to be honest, the heart of the situation that we seek to forgive in, the heart of the situation in which we seek to be forces for peace in, the greater the power of Jesus that we will witness. The only question for us really this Christmas is whether I want to meet Jesus as the Prince of Peace now, the one who died me for me and gives forgiveness and the power for peace today or whether I will only meet him when he returns as one who has resisted his rule and stood against him. But God's present to each and every one of us this Christmas is peace with him and the power for peace into our lives. Make sure you unwrap his present. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Prince of Peace. And we pray that whether we're new to these things or familiar with them, you would help us to look to him, to turn to him, and to find the deep joy of being forgiven by him. We pray too that you would give us the strength to bring that peace that you have given us and to share it with others. Help us each to be a force for forgiveness and reconciliation this Christmas that we might show your light and your hope to the world. Amen.